And so now, Lord, we ask that you would send forth your word, um, your um, word into our midst. Um, Thank you for your written word, Holy Scripture, and thank you for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him out from your very own being. You sent him out from heaven in order to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. And um, so we thank you for um, sending your son. And we ask now that as we study your written word, that your word made flesh, that Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, um, would be palpably present here, that we would know him ever more fully, and that we would be drawn into a fuller relationship with him and through him with you. And thank you for the mercy and the grace that you extend to us through him. Pour out that mercy upon us afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So now, as um, we've all been, as you know, we've been looking at and studying um, the Gospel of John, and one of the things that I've been highlighting is one of the structures, um, a, a sort of a structure, arbitra- not quite arbitrary, because a lot of people notice this structure within the Gospel of John, and we've looked at sort of the first half and the second half, the first half of the book and the second half of the book, and you'll see on that first little bullet point context, I say, well, what's, what is the hinge between... Uh, what, or what are these two books? If we, I almost need to put those in quotation marks. The Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. What does that mean? Does anybody remember what the Book of Signs means? It's the miracles. Uh huh. And why do why do we call them signs in John? Pointing to who Jesus is. Uh huh. I'm gonna make an arrow because they're like road signs. And what chapters roughly contain the seven signs in the book of John? Nice. Wow. And what is the ultimate sign, the biggest sign that they all point up to? And then that makes, that's sort of the top of the roller coaster, the pinnacle, um, the sign that most um, clearly is sort of like the top of the mountain peak that points to who Jesus is, the greatest of all the signs. Raising Lazarus. 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 Is raised from the dead, and so we have the end of the book of the of signs, which we got to last week or two weeks ago when we finished chapter 11. And do you remember what happened after Lazarus was raised? There were ways of healing. Yes, and they started to make pretty concrete plans, didn't they? They said, "That's it. That that's it. We've got to do something about him because all the people are going to go after him." And then what will happen? Well, if all the people go after him and his popularity increases, then ours will diminish. Ours will diminish, (laughs) right, because Rome will come and take it away from us. And the irony is that Rome did come and take away the power and authority from these 70 rulers during the um, uprising that happened about 30 years later. Um, So they're right to worry about this, um, and they're right to recognize that this rebellion, this um, potential rebellion, Jesus as a Messiah could be seen as a rebel leader against Rome. Um, and the irony, too, is that they would have loved to rebel against Rome. They just didn't like that Jesus wasn't um, sanctioning their own power and authority. Uh, the, the fact that Jesus was sort of um, so powerful and had such authority from heaven that he didn't need their endorsement. Jesus did not care about the religious leader's endorsement. We see that all throughout the Gospels. And that rankled um, a little bit because we see later on that the Sanhedrin, um, this group of 70 elders, would support other messiahs, in quotation marks, other um, potential kings of Israel. Any questions about that? 
before we. Yeah, what's the Book of Glory? Oh, <laughs> I won't. Don't worry. Yes, <laughs> Backwards. What's the Book of Glory? Does anybody remember? What do I mean when I say what? First of all, what chapters? Yeah, that's right. It, we go 12 through the end of the book, roughly. And why? Why, if we were to arbitrarily designate the second half of the book, um, the Book of Glory? Why is it? Why glory in particular? Jesus talks about himself. Yes. Yes. Jesus. Yes. Yes. Definitely. And the glory, glory all throughout Scripture. When you think of glory, I think of the visions of God the Father in heaven, the visions of angels and wheels of fire and thrones and altars in heaven and all the things that the Old Testament prophets saw. All of those amazing revelations, almost as though Revelation that sense of apocalypse, you know, you know, when you look at Revelation, the book of Revelation, talks about an, an unveiling, almost as though there's a veil in heaven and the veil's lifted and you peek inside and you see what's going on in there. And that's what's happening in Isaiah 6, in Ezekiel 1, in all of these Old Testament prophets and those visions that they have of God Almighty. Those visions are called theophanies. And in those visions, the glory of God is manifested in light and lightning and rainbows and all of these incredible, um, powerful, beautiful images. Um, and yet, none of those adequately represents what the prophet is seeing. You can tell that it's so glorious and majestic, you can't even put words into it. Especially in Ezekiel, it's really great. The Hebrew in Ezekiel is all disjointed because he can't even describe what he's seeing. So there's this sense of glory, the glory of God in heaven associated with power and light and majesty and um, his sovereignty over creation. But in John, John takes the word glory and the idea of glory and he turns it on his head, on its head. Because when John talks about glory, he is talking about the hour of Jesus' death, the cross itself. And so for John, up is down and down is up. That God, the glorious one, the majestic one, um, God himself, the ruler of the universe, would deign to become human. The author of the story would enter into the story and not just enter into the story, but die and die to um, redeem the story and to redeem each one of us. And so for John, the hour of Jesus' glorification is the, his death on the cross. And we'll see that next week. Jesus, is, it, it starts to say actually two weeks from now, in chapter 12, later on, Jesus starts to say, now is the hour. And he's talking about, now it's time for me to die. Now it's going to happen. I'm going to go to the cross. And so for John, that's the glory, that Jesus would humble himself to die on a cross. And so we see that, that um, we've had the first three years of Jesus' ministry in chapters 1 through 11, and then time slows down, and we get through Passion Week in the next several chapters. We take about... Um, you know, John extends his story. He extends his narrative to span just one week, the last week of Jesus' life, and a little bit afterwards as we look at what happens after Jesus is raised from the dead. Um, and so the hinge, if you were to, you know, I'm going to, I won't try to draw, draw a hinge for you, but oh, look, there's one. Um, <laughs> but a hinge, you know, you see that turning point, and the turning point between these two parts of the Gospel of John happens right around where we are in it right now. So remember that we've been looking at the raising of Lazarus 
and the raising of Lazarus, and again, this is why I titled my film Rising and Falling, Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he knows that just as he raises Lazarus from the dead, that will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And as he raises Lazarus, then he himself will be giving up his own life um, uh, to save the world. And so there's that sense of an exchange, one for the other, that Jesus is exchanging his own life for Lazarus's life. And in a sense, Jesus exchanges his own life for our lives. Um, and so that's why I called it rising and falling. And so that's your next little bullet point that um, Jesus is about to say um, later on in chapter 12. Um, he's going to say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, um, and he talks about this falling to the ground as being, um, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And there he's talking about himself. He's prophesying about his own death, that through his death, there will be much life. Um, so that's why this is the hinge point, because it's we're moving between, and it's really that last um, sign, that raising of Lazarus, that propels us into the book of glory, where we focus on Jesus' death. Any questions about that before we start to look at our passage for today? Now, um, what I'd like for us to do is just to go, um, our passage for today, I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but our passage for today is going to be John 12, 1 through 11. So if you want to turn to that, and we're going to read it aloud the way we, we normally do, and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to also re- look at two other passages And we're going to look at them because there are some similarities and differences between them, and it will help us understand our passage for today if we make a note of the similarities and the differences. So the two other passages I've put on your sheet, and those are, um, uh, so let's see, Mark um, 14, 3 through 9, which is also very similar to Matthew 26, 6 through 13, and then Luke 7, 36 through 50. And there we have, what we have in those passages is we have um, different um, accounts of the anointing of Jesus by a woman. And we're going to look at um, what's going on. We're going to ask, well, are these the same? Is this the same thing that's happening, or is it something different? And looking at the similarities and the differences will help us discern this together. So we're going to be a little bit, we're going to be like investigators today. So does someone want to, I'll start us off with John chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. (coughs) Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray them, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should have, should save this perfume. 
king for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because in account of his, him, many of the Jews, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Great. Thank you. So kind of, you might want to mark that or leave your paper in that while we flip in that passage, because we're going to go back to John. We're going to spend most of our time looking at John, but I think it'll be helpful for us. And I don't know if you've realized this, but so often there's a repeat of a story in one gospel. You'll hear it in another gospel. And it's really helpful to look at the two of them at times and say, okay, what's going on here? Why are they different and why are they similar? So that's exactly what we're going to do right now. So if you want to turn back, and we'll start with Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Um, and so keep your, put on your, you know, magnify, you know, get out your magnifying <laughs> glass, put on your Sherlock Holmes hat. We're going to look at this and we're going to ask, well, what are some similarities here? And what are some differences? So you might even want to jot down a note or two if you notice something that's different, especially. Similarities, will it'll, it'll be easier to find what's similar. It's the differences that we'll have to really get out our magnifying glasses for. Um, but we're going to talk about all of them after we read the third passage. So let's read Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. Great. Okay, so what are some things that you see that are similar between John and Mark? I'm changing my mind, sorry, but just because I think it'll be helpful for us to pause here and look at what are some of the similarities that you see. I'm thinking location, I'm thinking um, numbers, I'm thinking descriptions of the perfume, I'm thinking um, names of people involved in the story, I'm thinking of all of those things. What are some things that are similar? Do you think? They're at Bethany. They're at Bethany. Yeah, they're both at Bethany. That's great. And they both mention reclining. They do. Well, that's because of the way they ate. Yes. Oh, no. I, could, I would get indigestion. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what else? Bernard. Yes. And it's very expensive. And it's mm -hmm. very expensive. What else? It's quite wasted. Mm-hmm. And there's an objection about it, isn't there? Mm -hmm. right. yeah. And uh, they're indignant. Mm -hmm. Poured it over his head. Yes. 
I'm going to take a look at John. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That is a difference. I'm going to get out my different. You see, this was all a ploy, so I could use all the mat all the different colors, <laughs> colored markers. Okay. So which one was the head? The head was Mark. Which one was the feet? John. Yeah. What else? Well, they both wanted to, um, they, the criticism was the money should have been given to them. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I wrote a word that's not a word. That's a similarity. <laughs> yes, thank you. So it's very humbling when you're like, okay, there's, there's a, um, And Jesus rebuked them. Uh-huh. What, why does Jesus, what does Jesus say when he rebukes them? You'll always have the fool with you, but you won't always have and then what? You always have the poor. You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Why did she do this? For my burial. Yeah, mm -hmm. he says, she, this is for my burial. Anything else? Similar or different? Yeah, tell me. Well, let's just do that. Since we're here, let's do that now. Since you're already looking at both of them, might as well. Well, it's Simon the leper. Yeah! Okay, so that's Mark, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does it say whose house we're in, in John? Yeah, left, uh, mm -hmm. Lazarus. Are you sure? No. We don't Simon get... Simon the leper. It yes. says Simon the leper in, John, in Mark, but Mark. in John, does it say whose house we're in? It says we're it in says Bethany. It's in Martha's we're not sure. Well, Martha's serving, and Mary's at Jesus's feet. She's always at Jesus's feet, um, and <laughs> we see her at least three times at Jesus's feet. It's a good spot to be in. She knows where it's at. Um, and it, does it say where Lazarus lived? Are you sure? What does it say? No, this says the home of Lazarus. Yours says the home. Oh, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to disappoint. The Greek does not say the home of Lazarus, and what I will say, Greek doesn't. Right. Mine says Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived. Where Lazarus lived. Right. So we're saying we're in the town of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We're in their their village. Well, if you were if you had a party at your house and you were the host and the host, you know, and it said, well, and Kay was hosting and Kay sat down at the table with her guests. I mean, or Kay sat down at the table. Would you be like, well, yeah, Kay sat down at the table. She's the host. <laughs> so it might be there's this thought that maybe this is not Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house, because why would you need to say Lazarus was reclining at the table? There's some question, right, might not be his home. Or it could be that Simon the leper might be their father. Well, it's their father's house. This English translation says very clearly, that came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, where they gave a dinner for him. Okay, and what they're saying about that is... Martha served. Bethany is the home of Lazarus. I know, but Martha served. Yeah, I know. I mean, it just clearly implies that they're... So you really think they're at their house? It well, could I be. Mean, I don't yeah. know. I don't know where they are. I'm just yeah. saying that's what this translation is telling. Yeah. The I would say what the phrase where they lived is qualifying the village. Yeah. 
and it might be in some of those small villages. You know, I don't know if you've been to someone in people's homes in your neighborhood that you're very close to. Isn't it all hands on deck in the kitchen? You kind of, <laughs> you, you know, and I've noticed this is something I love about the South. I don't know if this is a Southern thing versus a Northern thing. Well, I grew up, you don't go in someone's kitchen. It is sacrosanct. But here I see people, friends just, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get in there and start doing her dishes. And it's like, yeah, especially at a big party, and it's such a gift that there's this freedom to come in. You know, your kitchen is my kitchen, and I'm going to help you clean it because you just hosted this wonderful party. So it might be, we, there is some ambiguity. Um, it's not crucial one or the other way. The real question is, are these two, you know, whose house is it? The question is, I think we're talking about the same event. Would you say that? Yeah. It's too similar not to be the same event. So we're talking about, um, so here it says Simon the leper, Bethany, home of Martha serving. <coughs> and also, one thing, the woman is named in John, right? It's Mary. And what does... What does um, Mark say about me, about this woman? Does he give her a name? In both, right? Isn't that a, an interesting point? No, it doesn't say it in John. Justin. Okay, good. Justin Mark. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that's a big one. And only in John does it say that she wiped it with her hair. Right, good. And what else does John, there's another named person in John. John gives us a lot of names. He does the uh, rebuking from Judas Iscariot. That's right, Barbara. It's specifically Judas Iscariot who objects. And it's really interesting, John says why Judas objects. Judas doesn't object because he has such a heart for the poor. He objects because he used to carry, he, used to, he was the treasurer of the group, he used to carry the money box, is what it says literally. He used to carry the money box, and there's this idea. He carried it, and he lifted out of it. He put it, lifted, he carried it off. Pilfered. Um, he pilfered. <laughs> he was embezzling. He was a thief. So we see, that's the only other place where we see, oh, there's something about Judas's character that's off. Um, so Judas is the objector, which is very interesting. But you know, in Mark it says some of those present, so he wasn't no. the only one in Mark. Right. And in Matthew, who echoes Mark and has a couple of different things, Matthew even says it was his disciples who objected. Right. So it's sort of narrowing it down. Is it everyone there or is it disciples? Oh, it's really very specifically one loud objector. Yeah. And it might be that Judas is objecting loudly, yeah. and there are a couple of others that are like, yeah. right. So um, any other thoughts about these two accounts? It's confusing. Why is there stuff that's similar? Why is there stuff that's different? And so about the house, I would say I do think it's the same house, even though it's described in different ways. John describes it in one way, and Mark describes it in another way. How does Luke describe it? Well, we're about to find <laughs> out. That's a great segue. Thank you, Barbara. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to have to pick another color marker, aren't I? We're going to start in verse 36. And here at this, why I read so much in our 
teaching in our preaching in Luke. It's just where the lectionary is. Isn't it amazing? We're really Everything's in, coming from Luke. I know. And that's how it is in different years. It's the year that we're in. We're and in the Luke year. Um, what's her name? Heidi. When Heidi went through Luke, she did it in a day. Did she really? She did. Yeah, but we spent a year at least on Matthews. Yeah. And, and we spent 20 minutes. <laughs> Are you kidding? And we and, and, and almost no time on Mark. I'm not remember Mark, yeah. but I just remember Luke was just that day and that's it. That's In this study on Fridays. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And then here we have these... Uh, with the whole month of October, and I guess September we had Luke too. And really, you know what? All summer long, you go back and look at the lectionary. It's been all it's been all summer since since Easter. We've just been in Luke, 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 which is good. You get this feel for the different gospel writers, and that's one of the beautiful things seeing. And this, even as we're doing this, just a little preface that um, how many of you are in large family? I'm in a large family, so I was. And how many of you talk with any of your siblings about what happened when you were children? And, um, and well, no, it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. And no, you did not say that to me. And mom didn't do this or whatever. And you have this moment where you were both there and you're sort of trying to figure out what's going on. And um, one of the beautiful things, you know, about the Gospels <coughs> is that they weren't just trying to say, well, what did Jesus, you know, what really happened? When you look at the similarities between the accounts, they're all eyewitnesses. John was there. He's one of the 12. Matthew was there. He's one of the 12. John Mark, we know, was hanging around. He's probably the man in Mark, the young man who in Gethsemane flees away and leaves behind his clothes. He gets grabbed by the, um, the temple guards or the soldiers, and he, and he shivers out of his robe and goes away. But he's been around Jesus during his lifetime. He's been there. He's not one of the 12. Luke also is going off of the testimony of Paul, and Paul is with uh, spent a lot of time with Barn, Paul, Paul and Peter. I think Luke, I think, spent some time with both of them. But I do think that both bear are part of that witness. But I think Luke re- or really knows Paul. I mean, he traveled with Paul. But who else traveled with Paul but Barnabas? And I do think Barnabas was there a lot during Jesus's life. And so you have this sense of eyewitness testimony and um, and so then John is writing last of the four gospel writers and I really believe that he has at least one of the other gospels to be able to look at and say well kind of happened like that but not really let me just clarify a little bit so let's just keep that in mind while we look at Luke so Luke chapter 7 verse 36 I'll start us out. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. 
No, that's good. Till 50. That's good. Okay. This will help us. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. When Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven, the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who has forgiven sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Are you confused? The, the description of Mary is is as a sinner. Is the description of Mary as a sinner, or in Luke is she a sinner, or is the woman a sinner? No, the woman is a sinner in Luke. So right, it's not Mary, is it? Right. Well, we don't know that it's Mary or not. A lot of times, the early church would conflate these ideas in part because they said, well, she's a woman, she was a sinner. Well, but we don't do that with men. We don't say, well, he's a man, he's a sinner. What they mean is a notorious sinner. Yeah. We don't get the sense that Mary is anywhere else called a notorious sinner. Often that's thought to be Mary Magdalene, who's a notorious sinner, but it's never said of Mary Magdalene either. The only thing the Gospels say about Mary Magdalene's moral life is that she, Jesus exercised seven demons out of her. And then she was free and followed him around. Um, so, so, do you think it's the same woman or a different woman? I think this is a different woman. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Well, I what else? What other differences or similarities do you well, see? Well, the Pharisees, you, you have a definite person who's in this house. It's yes. a Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. That's oh, is it similar. Simon? I, I it know. Simon. 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 But he's, what's it? He's called Simon. Simon but he's called a Pharisee as well. I thought maybe that was one of the disciples that he was talking about. <coughs> no, it's not. He's in the okay. home of a Pharisee whose and name happens to be Simon. Oh, Do you okay. see? I know it's very confusing. I hope I'm not leading you down the garden path and you're going to say, I don't understand any of it. But do you think we're going to work through it? Do you, are there similarities? What are the similarities that you hear? There's With an alabaster. Yeah. Mm hmm. But it doesn't tell you what the perfume was. It was right. Expensive. Although the alabaster is the same with um, Mark, but not with John. Well, the whole parable teaching is unique to this one. Yeah. Tell me more about that, Trudy. Well, I mean, he didn't do that in the other um, two accounts so far. Is there, okay, well, I guess my question is, is there an objection in both accounts? Yeah, there's an objection. 
but is the content of the objection different? In one, what does Simon say, Simon the Pharisee say in this one? Does he say anything out loud? No, he says it in his head, and Jesus knows what he's thinking, which is so cool. And Jesus says, Simon. And what is Simon's objection? That this woman is a sinner. Yeah, and if you were a prophet, you'd know she was a sinner, and you wouldn't let her touch you. So his objection is very different from the objection in the other account. Um, is there any discussion about the cost of the ointment, of the perfume? No. Whereas in the other one, they say very specifically, and this is always an interesting thing, in the, they, they say very specifically, 300 denarii, both in Mark and in John, to show you how expensive it was. That was about $30,000. Um, <laughs> perfume, the cost, $30,000. And she just pours it out. Goodbye. Goodbye, perfume. Oh. Um, <laughs> what did she say? <laughs> I heard that. Only they could afford her. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Whether she, you know, how did she get this money? Um, any other similarities that you see between, are they reclining in Luke? Yeah, they are. But that's how you eat. So they're reclining at a meal. Well, and this is a difference, but it's the first time we're going to talk about the tears, right? Right. That was great. Tears. And they really didn't bring up the fact that they should have sold it and given the money to the poor either with this one. Right. They didn't. But that's not a part of the objection at all. I'm, I'm mixing up my colors center. here. I mean, this <laughs> And um, what's the order in which she, does she, this is very, seems like splitting hairs. In John, she anoints his feet with oil and wipes it, them with her hair. In Luke, she, she is that what she, that's not what she did in Luke. No, what she did do in Luke. Well, she wiped his, she, she was weeping and she wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed him and poured perfume on them. She leaves the perfume on his feet. She doesn't she doesn't she doesn't, she doesn't get the, she doesn't get the perfume on her hair. No. Right. But there is hair. That's hair. There's hair in John and hair in Luke. Yeah. Anything else that you she notice? Them before she took the perfume. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of where she's standing behind him at his feet. Okay, so here we're going to talk about, okay, a dinner in the ancient world. Dinner was at a ta- in a U-shape. They had these couches laid out in a U-shape. And it was very much not like Da Vinci's Last Supper. So when you think of the Last Supper, don't think of Da Vinci at all with Jesus in the middle and the men all sitting at a table. They didn't have tables and chairs. They had all the food would be in the center. And what you would do is you could never eat with your left hand. Sounds like India, doesn't it? You could never eat with your left hand. You would eat with your right hand, and you'd recline. So you'd be reclining like this with your head in the middle. And so when it says later on in John, and we'll look at this later, that John was reclining at Jesus' breast, what that means is he's the next guy over, and that was the place of honor, to be with your head closest to the heart of the guest of honor. So John has his. 
I know, indigestion, right? So they're, and then they eat with their right hand and they put it into their mouth like that. So it's not like Mary or the sinner woman, sinful woman is crawling under the table to do that. That always seems just wrong. Who's going to crawl under the table? Yeah. It just seems so weird. It would have been a, sort of like a sleeping bag. They would sort of rolled it out, sort of a... Yeah. 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 I I think some of the wealthier ones were. Yeah, it might have been pillows, but it also sometimes they had stuff raised off the floor like couches, um, almost like a bed or something like that. But um, but the point is, Jesus's feet are out behind him. He's in Superman pose, so it's not like she's crawling under the table. His feet are exposed, and so she has easy access to his feet. Does that help kind of fulfill fill out the picture? Okay, well, what do you think? Do we have three different accounts, two different accounts? What do you think is going on here? I mean, just look at the colors. These are the things that are different, sort of. I think it's two different accounts. Well, and this, yeah. this one also, he gives that story, and he said, tells the woman her sins are forgiven. Exactly. The teaching is different. Jesus is teaching something very different in these two different events. And so I would say they're two different events. But how interesting that two different women um, have this act of devotion to Jesus. And the, the motivation for the devotion is slightly different. So we see the sinful woman is so thankful. Hers is out of gratitude. Her gift is out of gratitude for the forgiveness of sins, for Jesus' mercy and God's mercy extended to her through Jesus. Mary, I would say it's also somewhat out of gratitude, but it's also a prophetic action. We're going to get into that because she sees and knows what's going to happen. We didn't talk about this, but Mark 14 and John 12, those are both the timing of them. When are they, when are they timed during Jesus' ministry? Passover. Yeah, they're just before Passover. Mark says it's after after Jesus already, you know, after the triumphant entry, after Jesus enters Jerusalem. John says, no, 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 it was before. It was five days or six days before. He's correcting Mark. And so you could see that where there's Mark's account, where there's Luke's account, John is correcting it. John's saying, let's get out. Okay, so John's saying, yes, it was in Bethany. Yes, they were eating dinner. Yes, there was perfume. Um, no, it was a little different. It wasn't that there was a sinful woman. It was our Mary. It was Mary who we know and love. Mary did this thing. And yes, it was with Jesus' feet, not so much with his head, although that'd be something else. Um, and Jesus' rebuke was about the poor and um, about preparing him for burial. Yes, it was this rare, rare, rare nard, which is this very expensive ointment that comes from uh, Nepal. And it's sort of related to chamomile, which I think is interesting. Jesus is going to go take a nap. Um, (laughs) The nard is very expensive, worth $30,000. And John's saying, yep, that's right. It was really expensive, $30,000. That's right. And it was wasted. People thought it was wasted. Um, And then he goes on to say, yes, he gives us the names of who we're talking about. This was the same place as where Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived. And it's some of our same people. And... um, and yes, Mary unbound her hair and wiped Jesus' feet. Um, but the content of the teaching is different, and it almost seems to me as though John is distancing um, himself from Luke's account and saying, no, Mark, Mark's telling the account of what happened right before Jesus' death. This is something else. This happens earlier in Jesus' ministry. And the, the big similarity between Simon and Simon, those names, 
Well, Simon was a really common name in the first century. Everybody, all the mamas wanted to name their baby Simon. So Simon was like right up there with the popular names of the first century. And Simon the leper could not have been Simon the Pharisee because you couldn't be a leper and be a Pharisee because you'd be ritually unclean. So there's no way that this Simon is the same person as this Even Simon. That's a good point. You might be able to if you've been cleansed, and that's a good point. Also, yeah. not to shatter. No, 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 no. I, because it is a theory. This is what I believe. I mean, it's it, it could almost be the same Mary in both accounts that she's forgiven in this one. I mean, we don't really know that Mary's such a pure soul. No, we don't. Um, it could be that she does this anointing early. Mm-hmm. Because it's so similar and it's so odd. Uh, it and is really odd to anoint someone's feet. And and then she comes back later in Bethany as more of a prophetic. She does it again. Yeah, it's possible. And some commentators actually have that exact same um, point of view. So, but I get hung up on the expense of perfume. Could she have? I mean, could have been something that took almost a lifetime mm-hmm. to gather up? And could she? There were people that had money, and a lot of the women that supported Jesus have, they have lots of money for some reason. They're all supporting Jesus. It's really cool. You see, you know, someone in Herod's household, one of Herod's probably, you know, upper ups, uh, I think it's uh, Joanna, is um, the wife of Chusa, who's in Herod's household. They have money, and Luke says that those women are supporting Jesus and helping his ministry happen. So you could see why if these women are habitually giving large amounts of money to help support this ministry, that Judas is saying, that needs to go in the coffers like all the rest of it. We're not going to waste it on Jesus' feet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that it's the same, ev- it's possible that it's not the, um, two events, but rather the same event, or two different, the same woman at two different um, times. I think that when we look at this one, you'll see why this particular John's account is so important before Jesus' death. I see some questions. Do you want to ask any more questions about this? It's hard to see this because, and I'm sorry to rub your noses in it. You know, I'm rubbing your noses in the differences between the gospel accounts because we need to look at them and say, well, there are some details that are different. Does this make it not the word of God? Absolutely not. It is God's inspired word. Holy Scripture is God's inspired word. And so how do we, we we do need to look at it and say, well, you know, some things were not as important to one of the um, tellers of the story. And he didn't highlight, Luke did not tell us about 300 denarii. And in, you know, in, in that world, in that mindset, that's one of those details that's really important to talk about if you're talking about the waste. But maybe it's the same event. And he just didn't feel the need to tell us how much it was worth. Um, and know, it, it's okay. Yeah. So it might be Luke's viewpoint as mm-hmm. opposed to John's or Mark's viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And there might have been several conversations around the story, and Luke's recording one of them that maybe Peter heard because he was close. Well, but Peter's account is behind Mark's as well. So maybe he's recording, well, so-and-so heard this Jesus telling this guy this, and so-and-so heard Jesus telling that guy that. You know, and so all of these are possibilities, um, but it is still God's word for us, and um, and the Lord speaks to us through both of these accounts, both all four of the accounts. One of the things that's really beautiful is that this is one of those few stories that um, is told in each one of the Gospels, even though there are some significant differences with Luke's 
account, and it might be, I think it's, I still think it's a separate account, but that um, in, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says to the disciples when he's, you know, protecting this woman and saying to the disciples, don't rebuke her, or to the people there, don't rebuke her. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told. So how neat is that, that in all three stories, there is this proclamation about this extravagant gift that this woman gives to Jesus. So we're going to start to look at that extravagant gift, and what does that mean? We've got... 10 more minutes. Um, so anointing with um, the nard, I said, was very expensive and from Nepal. Anointing with oil, of the head versus the feet. Um, the head was, um, anointing of the head, you see happening all throughout scripture. That's a sign of anointing for a specific purpose. All the kings were anointed, the priests were anointed, all of the leaders in Israel were anointed. Remember Samuel going and anointing little David before he, you know, anointing him for being a king. And there's this wonderful psalm that talks about unity within um, the people of Israel, that it is good when brothers live in unity. It's, a, it's, it's like oil running down the beard of Aaron and his sons. That, that beautiful image of anointing. Anointing with oil was a sign of prosperity um, because whenever, how, how many times have you had um, some kind of very messy food like barbecue, ribs, or um, roast chicken, and you have to pick up the meat off the bone and you eat it. And of course, when you're done, I always, you know, wipe my face. I might even use a little wet nap because I really don't like the sticky weirdness. But you know you're going home that night and you're like, I still feel sticky. And for me, I'm still young enough that I'll break out. And so I'm always wanting to get water on my face really quickly if I've had barbecue. That, so there's that idea of um, oil on the face of a person is a sign in the ancient world where you only meet, eat meat if you're wealthy. You only eat meat in a worship context where you've brought the bull and you've sacrificed the bull in the temple and then you're eating the meat from the bull together as a celebration. Well, that oil is a sign of that joy and the celebration and the feasting. Um, so there's that idea of the celebration and the feasting, the idea of royalty and this important role for Jesus. So if his head was indeed anointed, it's a sign of his kingship and a sign of the festivities and the joy um, wherever Jesus is. If it's his feet, that are, it's all wonderful, whether it's his head or his feet. His feet, anointing of his feet was, anointing of the feet was not done. The feet were washed. But if you think about it, when I lived in, I think I've already said this here, but when I lived in New York City, I had two things that I told my sister, sister who lived there too. After I'd lived there for six months, I turned to her and I said, do you know, New York City is sort of, it's like the capital of the world. How did I not realize this? And she just said, oh, yeah, it's the capital of the world. I mean, culturally, that was the idea. It's not the biggest city in the world. But it is a, a center for a culture in not just the U.S., but around the world. So it, she said, she was like, oh, yeah, of course. Then the second thing I said almost right after that was I said, well, and you know what else I realized? Is that all those puddles on the sidewalk are not water. <laughs> she said, yeah, they're not. Don't step in them. <laughs> um, so you think about New York City with the paved sidewalks and the paved streets, and the only animals are the domesticated animals, and yet there are puddles everywhere that you have to step over. Well, in the ancient world, there was no paving, and there were a, a lot more animals. So you just think about that, and they wore sandals. So you're walking down the street. In New York, when you enter someone's house, you take off your shoes. It's very Eastern. It's almost like 
an Asian household in New York City because you walk in and the polite thing to do is to leave your shoes at the door because who knows what's on the bottom of your shoes? You've been walking around the city. Well, in the ancient world, can't you imagine if that's what your feet look like? You should not come into, you know, go wash your feet before you come into the house. And so in wealthy households, the lowest slave, the lowest servant's job, um, their job, the most lowly servant would wash the feet of the guests as they came into the home. And um, it was such a lowly job because the feet were seen as being so um, unclean and so dirty that it was something that no Hebrew servant could be made to do by his master or his employer. You, if you were Jewish, your Jewish um, master or, or boss could not tell you to go wash someone's feet. It was like, no, I'm not doing that. And a rabbi could not say to his disciples, wash my feet. Pick up my dry cleaning, yes, but not wash my feet. <laughs> so it was the lowest of the low, the Who lowest did? thing to do. Who they would have non, non-Israelite servants do it. Yeah. Samaritans. Yeah, Samaritans or Moabites or any other kind of Gentile could do it. But then, yeah, it does, that's a really good question because I've also wondered that. Maybe you had to wash your own feet. <laughs> you know, you were given the water and go to it, but that doesn't sound very hospitable. So how about this with Mary, the paragon of hospitality, um, coming up to Jesus? And um, so there's that head versus feet. The other thing I've put down here, a woman's hair was her glory. You see this in Paul's letters where he tells those free new Christians who are, are just reveling in their freedom and the joy that they have in the Lord. And the women are prophesying in the midst of the church. There's this sort of renewed freedom and, and even some leadership, I think, for women in that very early early church setting. And um, yet Jesus, or through Paul, the Lord says to the people in um, Corinth, well, no, you cannot. Well, you cannot prophesy with your hair down. I know you're free. I know it's wonderful. Don't prophesy with your hair down. It's bad news. Why was it bad news? Well, because a woman's hair, and you see this in the Middle East today. You see it in Muslim culture. The hair is so beautiful. The hair on a woman's head is so lovely that it will lead every man to sin if they look at it. So you better keep it up. So there's this idea in which only a woman's husband would ever see her hair. A woman's hair, a respectable Jewish woman in the first century, would not show the hairs of her head to anyone except her husband. Not even her children would see her hair. So for Mary to unbind, and you even see it in Numbers 5, you see there it's talking about an adulterous woman, and one of the punishments for adultery is that her hair is unbound publicly. Her shame is made known publicly. So to walk around with your hair unbound in the first century was like an advertisement. For sale, don't I look good? Come and get it. (laughs) So, of course, Paul is saying, you can't do that. That's not seemly. (laughs) Don't, you know, you need to keep your hair up. I know you're free, but keep your hair up while you're prophesying. Because everyone will be, um, people will fall, you know, people will sin if your hair is down. So what, um, thank goodness that's not the case today. Um, But so Mary, or this woman, unbinds her hair what a costly gift. She is there, um, she is publicly unbinding her hair. What is she doing? I wonder why it's so offensive. So now moving down to the devotion of this woman, her devotion is shown through her humility. She would get down and wash his feet with her, um, with this ointment, touch her hair to his feet. That is a sign of her deep humility. 
her service of Jesus, that she would even wash his feet. And we're going to see that sort of, I wonder if she knew about Jesus' teaching about the greatest and the least. Because then in chapter 13, remember, Jesus is going to do this, something like this. He's going to wash every one of his disciples' feet. And she has already done this. It's as though she has great insight into what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 26 through 28, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. She is um, great because she has been the servant even of Jesus Christ. Um, And so then the other thing is that this gift is very costly. The the gift of this um, unbinding of her hair, there's that social cost to that unbinding of her hair. By unbinding her hair and touching Jesus' feet with her hair, she is essentially ruining her reputation. She's saying, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I want to give you the most intimate gift I possibly can. I want to give you all of myself. Um, It's a very intimate moment for her to touch her hair to Jesus' feet. And so there's that extravagance and that cost to her socially. Then there's the financial cost. $30,000. She might have been a sinful woman, Mary Kay, but um, I do think it's possible also that this is her dowry. If she's a wealthy woman, there's a source that says that women of that day and age, Jewish women or women of the Middle East, would carry around their necks a vial of perfume, wealthy women, and it was a sign of their worth. It was their dowry, and they would never open it. It was just this, it was like money in the bank. It was like in Jane Austen, oh, she has 40,000 a year. I mean, it was just that sense of worth and that sense of identity. She was a beautiful woman because she had this around her neck. I mean, we think about that probably with our, I mean, everybody loves jewelry. A really nice piece of jewelry just makes you feel like the world. You're a beautiful (laughs) woman. You're a worthy woman. This was her whole worth tied around her neck. And there she she goes and she breaks it open and she pours it out upon Jesus' feet. So there's that sense of the extravagance of her gift and her deep humility. And all of this comes from love for Jesus. She loved him so much that she would desire to give him this gift. And not only that, but she shares in the gift with him. She puts her own hair on his feet. How much, don't you think um, her hair would smell like that perfume? They didn't wash their hair very often. Might smell like it for a year, you know. <laughs> that, so she would partake in that gift with him. This is a very intimate moment to share that beautiful smell with Jesus, that aroma of that wonderful perfume. I think of it too as Jesus then would go on to the cross. They didn't bathe very often. I I would guarantee his feet still smelled like that beautiful ointment, even as they were pierced through with the nails. And the women there at his feet, at the foot of the cross, could still smell that sweet aroma, um, that sweet aroma that was preparing his body for burial. And so that's the other thing. uh, uh, Jesus says, she has done this to prepare me for burial. She is wise. This um, truth about what's going to happen next to Jesus must have been revealed to her by God because none of the other disciples get it. We see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus tells them three times he tells the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again. And they say, no way, what are you talking about? And they don't understand what he's talking about until after he rises from the dead. Mary understood something. 
She knew that Jesus was about to die. That wisdom was revealed to her from God. Um, she is, this is a prophetic act. So while it's an act of devotion, an act of great intimacy, it's also a prophetic act. And the prophecy in it, I would say, is that it not only is she wise, but she also has a corner on what's going to happen to Jesus. The extravagance of her gift makes sense to her, I would say, because she sees through the power of the Holy Spirit the extravagance of the gift that Jesus was about to give. And so her little gift of her entire reputation, her dowry, this costly gift is nothing compared to the costly gift that Jesus is about to give. Some people say, well, it's so extravagant. Why does Jesus have to die on a cross? God could just forgive us without the cross. It's unnecessary. It's sort of, um, and it's a stumbling block. We think of it as being scandalous, just like Mary's act was scandalous. But she had this sense, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, she had this intuition. She knew that Jesus was going to give the most extravagant gift of all. And one of the phrases in John's gospel that sticks with me is that um, John, in his account, says that um, the fragrance, um, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume in verse 3. That's not in any of the other accounts. John wants us to get this sense that we're there, that the whole house is filled with this powerful perfume, this aroma probably lingered on in that house, just as it lingered on on Jesus' feet, on Mary's hair. Um, that lingering of the fragrance of um, this extravagant gift is a, a little corner on the lingering of the fragrance of Jesus' extravagant gift. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it. The aroma of Jesus' costly and extravagant gift of his own life for us fills the house of God. It fills the nave of the Advent every time we come together to worship. It fills the air when we're together. And that sweet aroma draws us in. It reminds us. It says, yes, we are yours, Lord, because you have bought us with the price of your own blood. And so Jesus' extravagant gift is, in fact, no waste at all, just like Mary's extravagant gift was no waste when it was poured out at Jesus. Let's pray, and then you can stay back and ask me questions if you'd like. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your deep and vast love for us, that you would even um, serve us, um, that you would humble yourself to serve us in the most extravagant way by giving your own life as a ransom for many, just as you prophesied that you would. Thank you for Mary and her devotion to you. We ask that you would fill us up that we might have that same love, a love like her love for you, because we know that your love for her was just as great as your love for us. So thank you for your love. We love you back. And I ask, Lord, that your sweet aroma, the sweet aroma of um, your sacrifice and your love for us would linger on, especially throughout our day today, but in everything we do, Lord. Um, let us uh, uh, get a, just a whiff, a glimpse, a, a taste of your deep love for us. So thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask all of this in your strong name. Amen. Amen. Amen.